Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Mike Adelic. I am your host. I am your fearless leader, your pineal gland of liberty, your freedom chakra aligner, your third eye of libertarian psychedelia. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the show, or welcome for the first time to the show, uh, to Mike Adelic. This is a podcast where we try and explore all kinds of big ideas, all kinds of topics in our world with a psychedelic perspective, with a psychedelic mindedness about it, and a focus, a core focus of cognitive liberty, cognitive freedom, the ability to own your own mind and to alter your consciousness in whichever way you choose. We are all sovereign adults and we deserve to have the right to put whatever we will into our body and alter our minds in whichever way we choose. All right, that's my little mini manifesto right from the get-go, but also... It's very important to have education about this stuff. It's very important to do your research and learn. You know, I didn't get to where I am now not having uh, read up and researched on all this stuff because they sure as hell don't teach you this in school, you know. And as we're going we're gonna to find out today, we're going to go to school. We're going to go to a classroom where they are teaching us this kind of stuff, where they're teaching us the important stuff. Uh, so today we have <clears throat> very uh, special guest, Seth Fitzgerald from... The Drug Classroom, TDC, The Drug Classroom. Seth makes tremendous amounts of videos uh, that that dive deep into drug education from a non-biased point of view, free from propaganda, uh, just straightforward, great information, great videos. You know, his his view is, look, people are going to do drugs no matter what. We've always been a part of uh it's been a part of our culture it's been a part of our history it's not going anywhere so we might as well properly educate people so they don't uh make terrible mistakes uh, when it comes to this stuff or at least so they have an option uh you know to 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 learn in the in the right way you know put the information out there so if somebody is going to get themselves involved in doing something that they can at least be informed of what they're doing so this is a much-needed service, and uh, and I'm very excited about today's uh, episode. And uh, I think we had a really great conversation. We went from everywhere. We talked about drugs to drug policy to society and culture to history and to uh, the principles of liberty and 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 what may, what maybe the future will hold. <clears throat> Seth's a really smart guy, and uh, and I'll put all the links in the show notes. We talk about where you can find him, but it's thedrugclassroom.com, and uh, he's got a tremendous wealth of information out, uh, out there, educating people and uh, educating uh, his peers really on on the on drugs and and the use of uh, of drugs and their their uh, full implications, a full a full comprehensive scope of these things. So. Uh, before we get into the conversation, I just want to say thank you, everybody, for your for your love and your support and just your overall awesomeness. Uh, you know, I really try and, and create a podcast here where we can talk about just a wide variety of different things, and uh, and and hopefully. 
hopefully we have interesting conversations. I think uh, I think I do a pretty good job of, of making that happen. So thank you all for your feedback. It does not go unnoticed. I, I love to hear feedback from people, um, honest feedback. You know, if you guys, you know, if you like the show, if you think I'm doing good, a good job or a bad job, message me, contact me. We'll talk. It's great. And I want to give a special shout out, of course, to my patrons who uh, who make this all possible. I just launched a Patreon campaign, and uh, it's in its infancy. I haven't really marketed it so much yet. But if you guys feel compelled to help out and support the show, I would really, really, I would, I would make sweet love to all of you individually. I would come to your house. And, uh, and and we would just do it any way that you want. <laughs> but seriously, thank you to uh, to all the patrons. Special shout out to uh, Vincent, Jeff, Liam, uh, William, and Ben, uh, and Rob. Uh, you guys and and uh, the Dope Show, of course, which is a great a great program that had me on recently. So these guys are the first bunch of people to to donate and to come on board and to support my work. So I'm forever grateful for to you guys. Uh, thank you very much. And hopefully we can get more people going. And hey, look, if you don't have the financial means to contribute, get the fuck out of here. Shut the podcast off. I don't want... No, I'm just kidding. If you... Obviously, I'm just kidding. That's, uh, that's not what we're about over here. We're about get, get, giving this out to, to people for you know, for free, of course. But, uh, for those of you who feel like you, you can't, uh, contribute, that's cool. It's don't worry about it. But if you any, in any way that you can contribute, whether it's just sharing the episodes with friends, telling people about it, you know, word of mouth, that does a really good job, you know, just liking it and sharing it and that sort of stuff. That's really good. And then if you can just go, you know, go pick up your phone, go to the podcast app, search for Mikeadelic and just leave me a, a little rating and review in the iTunes um, section. That really helps. That's, uh, that's kind of the way that's, that's podcast currency right there, you know, ratings and reviews. So if you can help in that way, that would be great. And, you know, even if you're just a lazy bum piece of shit, <laughs> and you're just li- and you're just listening to these podcasts, and you're not doing any of that stuff, I don't care. At least you're listening. I love it. So you know, talk about it. Do whatever you got to do. But just know that as long as you're supporting me, I love you, and you better love me back. All right. <clears throat> All right. I think that's about it. Um, yeah, like I just really, uh, I really think that this episode is is really great. I really enjoy the work that Seth's doing with uh, the drug classroom. I think that we need more people out there uh, like him that are that are pushing for. Oh, you know what I wanted to do? I want to play uh, because in the beginning of the podcast, I I mentioned to Seth about this video that I just happened to catch. I was scrolling down Facebook and I just saw a video from the Drug Policy Alliance, uh, Ethan Nadelman, talking about uh, drug education and and what we can do. And I thought, wow, isn't this perfect? I'm just about to have this conversation with Seth about drug education, and here I stumble upon this video. So I'm going to play this for you, and then we're going to lead right into the conversation. Thank you so much for your support. Hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did and sit back and enjoy. We are the history and we are the future. I think if it's one thing that I ask of all of you, it is to learn, 
to keep learning, to learn and learn to keep your ears and your hearts and your minds open, to read and watch and to listen and to listen deeply, deeply, to stay open to the possibility of continually growing and changing, to understand that what brings you to this conference and to drug policy reform in the first place, that what brought you is just a part of something so much greater and so much larger. That for most of you coming from America, hearing what is happening around the rest of the world, both that is inspiring as well as that is terrifying, that is our struggle as well. That for those of you who come here because of the issues and the problems of mass incarceration we deal with, understanding the incarceration that operates around the world, understanding all the other harms of the drug war, understanding the rights of people to use drugs without being persecuted for doing so, not to be demonized, not to be left for dead, to be given a helping hand. That's our mutual obligation to keep learning and then, as you learn, to teach what you learn. To teach what you learn. You know, I am overwhelmingly committed to the notion that, that this is not a place where we preach to the converted, but where a small group of people come together so that we can become empowered to become ever more powerful agents out in the world. That we come here with the ability to go out and teach people who have never thought or cared about this stuff, of people who operate from ignorance and fear. That obligation to learn deeply and then to teach what we know, not to be an echo chamber in this little hotel room, but to go and to go when we go into the south, into the, the south with the highest incarceration rates in the world two years from now, we will be more successful and more welcome to the extent by which we teach what we have learned. We cannot suffice about just talking to one another. Every one of you know that. We have to be willing to talk to those people we don't like, who don't look like us, who don't sound like us, and who don't vote like us. But that is how we're going to move to the next level. You know, these are... These are, as always, and they will, as they will probably always be, challenging times. You know, we look at what happened in Paris just a few days ago, and we can see the ways in which evil and terror lurk in this world, and in which we will never, ever be free of that. It's how we manage it. We look at the people in our government and elsewhere and the people running office who want to respond to that sort of terror and evil in all the wrong ways by expelling and punishing those people who are fleeing that very terror. And that's not right. We see, people, we see people doing with their fears today and politicians taking advantage of those fears today just what politicians and others did with the fears around drugs in the past. And that's why our struggle is not just about ending the war on drugs in America, not just about ending the war on drugs around the world. It is about taking the values of science, compassion, health and human rights, of fighting against racism and classism and subjugation, against ignorance and fear, and taking those 
values to advance more closely to a civilized way of dealing with drugs and to a more civilized world altogether. In that respect, I am going to keep fighting as long as I can. Drug Policy Alliance is going to keep fighting. The organizations who join us here are going to keep fighting. I am counting on all of you to keep fighting. We are not going to stop. We're going to get bigger. We're going to get stronger. We are going to not let our internal conflicts ever tear us apart because we have a commitment as a movement to freedom and justice. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Is Information is power. But we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. Gerald from the drug classroom, the uh, the teacher of the of the drug classroom. You know, I wish I was in a in a school where they had a a class to educate me on drugs like uh, like you've been doing so well, Seth. So uh, please uh, introduce yourself uh, to people here on the podcast. Uh, you are, as I mentioned, from the drug classroom, uh, but you also have a podcast, the Addicted Podcast, that you also uh, co-host as well. And uh, welcome, welcome to Mike Adelic. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, yeah, I run the Drug Classroom. It's a online drug education resource. So, it's mainly based around videos, and I do some written stuff as well. And you can find all that on thedrugclassroom.com. And basically, the goal is recognizing that drug use exists. It's probably not going to go away, no matter what the legal system does about it. And harm reduction should really be the focus and the only way for anybody to use any drug safely is if they understand how the drug works what the dose is what you don't combine it with and things like that and that's my focus with the drug classroom yeah i mean i think you're doing a much needed service to to humanity and uh, i applaud you for that um and you know that's one of the reasons why i wanted to have you on the show uh, you know, it's funny, I was just watching uh, an old video from Drug Policy Alliance, Ethan Nadelman's closing remarks from the 2015 International Drug yeah. Policy uh, Reform Conference, where he's he's urging people, look, like, 
Let's educate people. Let's get the education out there. Let's educate ourselves and let's not, you know, hoard that education, but let's share that education with all kinds of people. Because like you said, people are doing this stuff no matter what. It, we might as well provide them with uh, the education. At least they have an option to choose to be educated about it if they if they would like to be. So uh, I think uh, what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. I think you're making some really tremendous videos, um, you know, from everything from nitrous oxide to, to DMT and everything in between. So it's uh, modafinil and, and, and everything that you can imagine. Uh, Seth makes, makes these very informative videos about on the drugclassroom.com and his videos are also up on YouTube. So um, I just want to, you know, give my applause uh, to you for, for doing that, no, thank for, you. For, for providing people with much needed education. Um, yeah. And so, so let's talk a little bit about, about that. Where, where did this come from? Uh, what were, what was your inspiration? What was your influence? What, what was your kind of drive to say, you know what, I got to do this. I got to make these, these videos. What, what was your, what was your inspiration for this? Yeah, over time, the project has changed a bit. In the more recent period, 2015, 2016 and on, it's been sort of a, a clear goal of improving drug education. Hopefully, that can extend into formal settings so it's not just online. And so I have a sort of a clear intention of trying to increase drug safety and things of that sort. It actually started in about 2014 and then it was really just a uh, a random project stemming from a long running interest in drugs basically the longest interest i've had and i just noticed that i mean there are good resources like arrowid is the the primary one mm -hmm. and there there's sort of a gap to fill in terms of the video format and then having somebody who could also answer questions directly. So Airwood is sort of, if you can, you know, look through the information on your own and figure it out. But if a lot of times pe people have questions and they like hearing something specific to their situation, and that's sort of another side of TDC. And so it just kind of, you know, the goal of filling uh, a little niche in that area because there is a severe lack of drug education. I mean, even within, once you start browsing drug-related communities online, you notice that even the people who are into drugs to that degree often have a lot of misconceptions about different substances, and it's clear that people are not truly informed. So anything I could personally do to try and spread information and encourage discussion and and then also hopefully get people to realize that the majority of drugs can be used in a safe way. There's not just always safe drugs and then always harmful drugs like mm -hmm. people like to suggest. You know, you have heroin on one side and cannabis on the other. I don't think it, it's a it's a spectrum. And even on the end of things like heroin or methamphetamine, people use them and there is a way to reduce the harm. So really education is, is, is vital and there's not a ton of resources available for it. 
Yeah, no, that's a re- that's a good point, and you know, um, the, good on you for seeing that disconnect and then kind of, you know, capitalizing on it to to, to bring people something that that that's much needed that is uh, that was missing from that. I I know what you're talking about. You know, I go on Arrowhead a, a lot, and uh, or I have gone on Arrowhead a lot, and you, you do have to kind of put the, put a lot of the pieces together, and it is a little bit more of a kind of DIY. But with like you said, with the drug classroom TDC, as you mentioned, uh, it, it provides with a video experience. It really, I really, I really like it because it it's it's kind of just very straightforward, very informative, very to the point, very clear and 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 jam packed with information, um, and and they're comprehensive videos. So some of these videos are about twenty minutes long. I, I was just watching one on nitrous oxide, twenty minute video on nitrous oxide. I mean that is great because. You know, most people would overlook something like that and and think it's not worth uh, the time or effort, but it it it's totally is because you're providing this uh, this much needed education in that space. You said that drugs had had been something that you were interested in for a long time, your longest interest. Where did that come from? How did that start? What what piqued your interest about them to to begin with? Originally, it was a sort of chilly or silly. Uh, childhood interest that was just kind of uh thinking it was cool like you you know seeing people when i was 11 or something and people using cannabis and it was just oh that's you know fascinating but but fascinating somehow to me more than everybody else so i always was kind of like focused on that topic and then by 13 14 uh there was a bigger focus on psychedelics and sort of entering into that realm of of information, so encountering Arrowhead, encountering McKenna and Leary, and just sort of learning in that sense. And so there's been different stages. And initially, it was just not a clear, you know, useful interest. But then it became the psychedelic stuff. And now, uh, since you know, for the past two, three years, it's really been focused on the science and the history and a more formal way of looking at them because it's gotten to the point where I just find every drug to be truly interesting. Uh, I mean, they all come, at least older drugs, all come with very unique histories and you can learn a lot about societies through researching them. And then on the effect side, you know, once you've experienced different drugs or just understand the different things that can come from them, the fact that certain experiences are possible with single molecules is is fascinating in and of itself. So it's just it's been this sort of progression and fascination with them. I'm not sure what initially sparked the curiosity, but it uh, luckily it transformed into something that I think is useful and definitely a different place than I was when I was just a, a kid interested in in the idea of using drugs. Yeah, so I I think I I think I I could definitely relate to that. Um when you're younger and you're seeing this kind of culture of cool maybe surrounding these things and you know um for me it was maybe like music of the 70s and 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 yeah. kind of that kind of stuff and looking back at that with uh with reverence and awe and just saying like wow there must be something to this this stuff. But at the same time, you know, I'm going to school and they're and, you know, briefly like they're mentioning, you know, don't do drugs or they're having the D.A.R.E. program come in or they're telling us scare stories about, 
you know, things like that. And I think it, the information is is definitely not um, as objective as one would want from a from a school. Did you experience that as well in your in your schooling? Yeah, the drug education that schooling started to provide was around middle school. I remember it in maybe like sixth grade to eighth and in that range. And uh, it, I mean, it was really the same as what I ended up encountering in high school as well. It, it's very focused on uh, similar to sex ed, although sex ed is a little bit better in the sense of just focusing on here are the possible negatives of drugs and therefore the reason not to use them. So technically, in some cases, it is providing half of the story, but the other half of the story about what benefits a person could get from different drugs, um, whether it's recreational or religious or medical, um, or the fact that although there are the harms, there was no talk about the fact that you could actually reduce them. It was just, and even to this day, when you talk to a lot of people, even in the drug community, a substance like heroin will be approached as this inherently dangerous substance, not recognizing the fact that 99% of people, I mean, you would have to have a, heroin is almost always going to be safe um, at a common dose. And that's not something that people tend to understand. Mm -hmm. So there was this, you know, maybe 10% of the topic was being provided in, in the school setting. And it was in such a way that it is so clearly biased and agenda driven. I mean, that's why you have, I mean, in my case, it was mainly teachers who were providing the info, but in other cases throughout the years, you've had police officers providing education. And I remember at, um, during high school, there was some, I don't know, like a former basketball player, I don't know, on the pro or the sort of college level who got into drugs and had, you know, one of those general sob stories. And, and, and it's, you know, unfortunate what happened to him. But the fact that he came to our school to give this hour talk and answer questions, even that was so clear, you know, what the message was. And it was, don't do them because this could be you. And, you know, not recognizing all of the other factors that exist and especially not recognizing that although that kind of messaging might work for keeping a tiny portion of people from using drugs, everybody else is going to keep using them, but you missed the opportunity to give them good information about how to stay safe. And, and that's, you know, it's, and that was really, you know, even as somebody who's in a better school or was in a better school system for drug education, you know, it was still that kind of rhetoric. So I can only imagine how it is in some places compared to what I experienced. Yeah, it's it's the fear based uh, model, you know, that uh, that they use and uh, scare tactics and fear, hysteria, paranoia. And uh, and like you said, you know, there there might be good reason to have that uh, a part of the conversation, but in a more objective way, in a more non-biased way, and in, in a way that I think that you're doing by providing a full scope, a comprehensive view of each kind of uh, substance or drug that you. Feel and I really that think that if about. yeah, I think if if you, and I've I've felt this way for a while that if you were to 
be viewed as a trustworthy source of info, which is also a problem when a teacher is telling you something you just know is false and then you don't listen to them anymore on the topic. Um, if you were to be viewed as a truly good source of information, there was not a stigma about drug use in general, and you just went through and provided the pros and cons of different substances, people would, I'm very much inclined to believe, inherently navigate towards the ones that you have outlined as being less risky than others. And so people could make that choice on their own. You don't have to force them. I mean, if 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 a certain drug is truly that bad and people trust what you're telling them, the chance is they're probably going to choose one of the other 30 substances that they could use instead of that one. And that, though, is kind of missed as an opportunity. I mean, definitely under prohibition, but also when the second you are providing false information, people start to tune out. And I know I did. And well, in my case, I tuned out and also tried to challenge the teachers, but mm -hmm. that doesn't really get anywhere. <laughs> so you, it's just it's a totally unproductive way of going about things. And I, and I think it's very important to always talk about the risks. I mean, whether it's cannabis or cocaine, I mean, you have to discuss the reasons why, you know, maybe this drug is safe on a monthly basis or a weekly basis, but you can't do it every day. Or this is something you should only use every few months, like MDMA. Mm -hmm. And so talk about, you know, which settings a certain drug is safe. And then once you get outside of that setting, you encounter some risks. And if it's just laid out in that way, and you also, as an educator, present yourself as, hey, if you have questions or you're using drugs or you know who know people who are, then you can actually come and talk. And the fact that, you know, you admitted to using them is not going, going to be a legal or a school issue. Uh, I mean, you can create a dialogue and people can work through the drug issue together. It doesn't have to be as malignant in society as people view it to be. Right. Right. It doesn't have to have all of this negative association attached to it if it was more upfront, open and honest. And like you said, you mentioned the prohibition. Right. So that's a real challenge yeah. as well, because automatically people have this false equivalency that, uh, you know, that it's illegal. So therefore it's immoral or uh, it's impure or mm -hmm. something like that, uh, which is which is a hard um, it's a hard stigma to get over uh, for a lot of people where I think a lot of people, maybe people who aren't in kind of our realm of thinking might see this from the outside and say, well, this person might be, you know, this person seems to be advocating drug use because they're they're talking about drugs in a in a positive light or or just not in a negative light and that you know mm -hmm. I just I just completely disagree with that uh, totally 100% but let's let's talk a little bit about the the drug policy um, mm -hmm. have have you uh, have you have you given much thought to kind of where we are in 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 our society right now as far as policy goes I mean it looks it looks like some things are progressing, but on the other hand, who knows? Uh, in this kind of turbulent time that we're living in, do you have uh, do you have hope for uh, for for drug policy to to um, get better? It seems pretty stagnant right now. I don't think that we're going to see any big positive federal shift in the near future. I have no doubt that most likely medical and, and recreational cannabis will continue to move through different states, and I can't picture 
the federal government actually preventing that from being implemented or, or trying to uh, mess with it to any significant degree. Uh, beyond that, uh, actually, you know, having decriminalization or legalization, I mean, that does not seem to be in the future. Uh, we probably will end up with easier access to MDMA in the relative near future. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I mean, it's really individual drugs may have penalties lessened or access, you know, be granted. But drugs as a whole, you know, adopting a a Portugal style or, in my opinion, what would be better is legalization. I mean, that could that could be a decade or more, you know, who knows when that will occur. I definitely don't picture it happening under this administration, but also it's not in, in the term when it comes to legalization, that might be something that is obvious to certain people, but the majority of citizens are not even in support of it. So it's particularly egregious when the government is inhibiting uh, liberal liberalization of cannabis policy because there is widespread support for it, but there isn't widespread support for legalizing heroin. So it's a very, we also have to focus on the bottom up change before, uh, we could really expect the government to, to do anything positive on the issue because, you know, you go to the average person and, and bring up prohibition on, you know, like I said, heroin or methamphetamine, and they're not going to have the same response as they do for cannabis. And so if, if the government is not in favor and the people are not in favor, I'm not sure you're going to see much movement. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. And it is that, uh, you know, people do necessarily think that uh, if you stand for all drug legalization, then that means that that, of course, you want to you want to see people. Uh, overdosing on heroin on the in the streets, you know, injecting heroin into their eyeballs, you know, walking around with syringes all out of their, yeah. every orifice of their body, and you know, and and it's just simply not the case. But that's that automatic kind of fear-based response that seems to be programmed into them. Oh, of course. And and if you legalize it, then you're going to have you know a mass amount of teenagers using. You're going to have more crime from people stealing and. And, you know, breaking into stores and, and, you know, finding a way to fuel their their drug habit. And I mean, it's it's assuming that I mean, this is one of the problems, too, is that the environment or the society that we currently have leads to people having a very limited view of what a drug user is like. I mean, that people think that everybody who has touched cocaine is, you know, the worst you know, possible cocaine addict spending a hundred dollars a day on the drug. And it's not, it's not true for any substance. And of course you would also reduce problems as well, because if you allowed for the price to go down, I think a, there would be far fewer people who have their lives destroyed even by a serious addiction if they don't have to give up their, their life in order in order to actually afford these absurdly high priced substances and because there's no reason for cocaine to you know cost what it does or for cannabis to cost what it does it's really prohibition based mm -hmm. so you know people assume i mean you would just end up with a huge amount of people 
engaging in the worst kind of behavior. And there truly is no statistical to support it. But it's the common view of, you know, if, if you say that you did methamphetamine last Wednesday, people have a lot of ideas about what's going on in your life. And they don't want that person to spread throughout society and and multiply into 10% of the population. And I can understand that if those, you know, those, uh, it would still be wrong, but I can understand that feeling if the notions about those people were even accurate and they're not. How did you know I did methamphetamine last week? <laughs> I just assumed, I mean, you know, I looked at your feed and I saw that, you know, you, you had, there was a lot of activity and a lot of consecutive tweeting, so I figured <laughs> all the you know, had, there was some stimulant involved. <laughs> or some kind of stimulant behavior must be happening. Yeah. Well, coffee. Uh, I was I was on coffee. I'll admit that. I was so so we it seems like we have these accepted substances, you know, that people really just don't seem to have any problem with at all. Uh alcohol, coffee. Um I I would include, you know, sugar and and maybe uh even uh, meat or, or, you know, even, even kind of internet, uh, television, all people can develop sorts of, uh, addictions to, to all sorts of different things that influence our, our nervous system and that, that create different kinds of stimuli. Do you, do you talk, talk to me a little bit about that? Because you're more of the expert on, on that than I am, but, but it would seem to me that, 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 it, that it would be that there's many different ways that people can get involved and in kind of uh, things that alter their 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 mind or their nervous system in some kind of way. Certainly, I mean the difference that you see between different activities are, I mean, what level of pleasure is coming from the activity, and then how immediate is that pleasure being provided, and also the other factor of if it can truly be treated as a escape from problems. So you have, you know. Different, you know, to varying degrees, those affect different things, you know, internet, gambling, drugs, food, etc. And so therefore you do see differences in the addiction. But the core idea of having a strong, emotional, repetitive attachment to something in the face of negative effects of that, that applies to a lot more than drugs. And it's not as though the drugs that people view as addictive are actually sort of entering the brain and after three uses are like hijacking it and changing the person into a, a, you know, drug addicted zombie. I mean, there's no, there's no basis for that. Instead they're, they are particularly dangerous and high consequence addictions or habits, but so is certain kinds of food addiction. I mean, you can get to a point where especially the cost to society, but also the cost to the person is much higher from a terrible diet throughout your life than every so often, or even weekly, or even, you know, multiple times per week using cocaine. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, what you will get in terms of heart disease and cancer, uh, you know, and, and cocaine is, is is on the higher risk scale, but I don't think that you would actually, if you were to do a risk benefit analysis, actually place, you know, constant fast food uh, administration 
significantly lower on the harm scale than regular cocaine or heroin use, uh, more so for opioids. As long as you stay safe acutely and don't, you know, don't use other depressants with opioids and don't, you know, use too much, you could use opioids for basically as long as you want without severe negative effects. And that's not something that people tend to realize. Whereas if you apply that kind of of tactic to a, a certain kind of food addiction or especially, you know, something like tobacco, I mean, you are on a on a clear course to negative effects. And so, yeah, I mean, addiction applies to all of these things and it's influenced to you know, a pretty significant degree by, do you have a history, a history of trauma? Do you have sort of any level of, of self-control, an ability to, you know, have a thought pop into your head to use something or to eat something and be able to withhold from doing that? And some people do more than, more than others. Mm -hmm. And also, are you fulfilled in life? Because if you are not fulfilled, you are not happy in a genuine way, then of course a drug or a, a gambling or video games can come along and take over a, a disproportionate amount of time and have negative effects on your life. I mean, that just, that is incredibly, incredibly clear to most people when it comes to viewing things as bad habits. But once we use the term addiction, people start you know, applying that specifically to drugs and group it into this other category that is far more extreme and far and, and people have far less control than they do in other areas. But there's not that much support for making that distinction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's sad to see it's 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 almost like this terrible cycle that we keep going in uh, that, that that just keeps kind of feeding itself with you know people who are uh, individually having having problems in their lives maybe they came from their childhood or some kind of trauma or something like that where they have to as uh, as Dr. Gabor uh, Mate talks about in his in his book uh, about dealing with addiction they develop these kinds of coping mechanisms and that can be anything and that can that can be be heroin that could be food that can be whatever and it's kind of just this thing to fill the void but also on a societal level and on like a collective level we we are in this kind of oppressive uh you know kind of like you know restrictive um prohibitionary era of of the fear-based model of things so it just seems like if people have problems they're looking to fill the, their problems and on, on top of that the societal problems are, are crushing them they can't get the help they need they can't get the education they need and then maybe they it just you know it just circles around in this in this spiral and we never really get to a place where we can have a full scope of a holistic approach of the entire system from society as a whole to the individual and then actually getting people the the education and the and the proper kinds of set and settings that they need i mean i i i look at something like what portugal is doing as a model and say that that would be nice if we could have something like that here and you know when i talk to maybe some friends about that yeah they have these you know safe injection centers and things like that people automatically go you know what are you crazy but i think that's a step in the right direction if we could at least facilitate some sort of proper way to to go about this um yeah so so what do you think about um what do you think about something like uh 
you know, on, on, in terms of, you know, this, this kind of cyclical nature here. And then, you know, not to, not to also, I mean, not to go off on a, a total tangent, but I guess I might as well throw this in there. The prescription drug element of things. Why, yeah, why don't, actually, why don't we just get into that a little bit? Because like you were saying, there's this tendency to think of, well, there's good drugs and then there's bad drugs. But there's no, yeah. there's, there's not necessarily any particular drug that's inherently good or inherently bad. Um, but do you think that, and I, I think it's you know my, under my conclusion that the prescription, the pharmaceutical, big pharma, you know, it's kind of in their interest to maybe demonize these other drugs. What's your take on that? That whole model, that setup of of big pharma and and, the, and this this kind of thing. I certainly don't doubt that there is a desire to keep certain drugs from entering the market and being legal um, from the side of big pharma. And I think you, you have seen it with cannabis instances of, of pretty clear advocacy from their side against any improvement in the policy. Uh, I don't know if it applies to all drugs and I'm, I'm not sure that, that Pfizer is too concerned about cocaine being illegal, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I just don't see it to the same degree as, as, substances that have a medical purpose and it just so happens that cannabis is one of relatively few drugs that actually would have a true impact on the sale of various pharmaceuticals so i can understand you know protecting their territory it's not you know it's not surprising at all i mean in terms of the bigger question of big pharma i don't spend too much time opposing it uh, most of the people I've noticed who do oppose big pharma tend to have misunderstandings about the drugs. They tend to really overinflate the harms. And, you know, I mean, we need to approach this issue. I mean, we can have reasons to oppose what a company does. And in fact, there's there definitely are good reasons. But the idea that, you know, uh, ADHD was just made up out of nowhere in order to sell methylphenidate and amphetamine is not really supported. And the same applies to depression for SSRIs. Yes, there's overprescribing, but no, it's not the case that SSRIs and SNRIs and TCAs and MAOIs are not effective at all. I mean, they, they actually did help change in a pretty drastic way the way that we treat people and I would much prefer to have that model than what we had before however at the same time there's also the other side where when it comes to say depression I would love for there to be psychedelic therapy I would love for there to be uh, the availability of of various sort of new technologies with uh, transcranial direct current stimulation and uh, I mean, there's just a lot of other potential therapies or ketamine, which can have a role. And, you know, so if we actually have a, a holistic model and have pharmaceuticals not be the only game in town, then I think any, any of the issues pretty much go away. It's just primarily an issue right now due to them essentially having a monopoly over the way that people are treated. Either you go to a therapist who sort of a psychotherapist, psychologist, who's not going to prescribe something and you might get some benefit, you might not. 
a lot of therapy has to do with interpersonal relationships. So the chance of you finding a good therapist to help you without a drug is not not as high as we would like it to be. Mm -hmm. So drugs, specifically SSRIs or uh, or even, you know, ADHD drugs are really the only option. So if we were if we expanded that to include more options for treatment, I think we would be in a better situation. So that's why I don't I'm not focused on actually opposing big pharma, but especially in the way that some people do, I think we just have to focus on the science and go wherever the science tells us. And yeah, so I mean, there are issues, but they're not as big as some people like to suggest. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I would agree with that as well. It, it, it can see it can it can seem kind of confusing, I think. Um, and I and I think a lot of people do have this, uh, you know, it, it, kind of team side approach almost where it's like, well, I'm in favor of psychedelics. I'm in favor of ayahuasca and DMT and yeah, and you're on like the natural side or the, the right, synthetic side, right, and, yeah. right, exactly. So therefore, the pharmaceutical industry must be inherently evil. Whereas I think it's just look there. I think it's more. I'm more inclined to agree with you, and I think they're just functioning the way that they have to function in the certain setting that we're in right now in the prohibitionary uh, era that we live in. So it's, you know, seems like they're just protecting their interests. They're doing yeah, what you they wouldn't know how to do. Yeah, you expect them to be, you know, the the great thing about, you know, having a sort of libertarian versus a sort of stereotypical conservative point of view and not not to say that conservatism is an issue cuz philosophy the philosophy side of it i don't really have an issue with but in terms of the stereotypical republican mm-hmm. um you know that versus libertarian it it's a nice position to be in because you can say i want big pharma to do whatever they want but i'm not i definitely don't want them to have a monopoly and have a lack of competitors i definitely don't want to subsidize them or have them sort of game the game the system for for their benefit. And and also, you don't have to feel like you're always defending a business. I can say, I hate what Pfizer did in that situation, but I don't want them to like go out of business and have all their drugs banned from the market. I mean, so there's there's a middle ground and a way of, of you know, approaching the activity of a company, which is, you know, sort of different than a lot of people have. Either it's always pro-business and, you know, they can do no do no wrong, or on the other side, basically the businesses should collapse because they've only ever harmed people. And, you know, surely nobody has been helped by, you know, any of the treatments that have been offered by, by pharmaceutical companies. And, and, and on that side, you see such a, a, a downward spiral towards not just saying, you know, ADHD is overblown, but saying, you know, vaccines for anything are just totally ineffective and harmful or, you know, antibiotics should never be used, you know, and things like that. And and it's almost always somewhere in the middle ground that the truth of the matter actually lies. So it's nice when you don't really have to feel like you're picking a side and you can just approach it through evidence and through sort of your own opinion. And, and unfortunately, when it comes to this issue, even a lot of well-meaning people on the, on the sort of pro-cannabis or pro-drug uh, policy reform side, they just 
they they often buy into a set ideology that doesn't line up with truth. And that that's unfortunate to see because it also gives the opposing side so many ways to to poke holes in that argument because they can actually point out legitimate flaws in the thinking of a anti-prohibition person when certain things are said. So, you know, it, it's a it applies to so many different areas, but the middle ground of of viewing things is incredibly useful and is underutilized. Yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought? Like, I mean, it, it's it makes so much sense. It just seems so reasonable. And I, you know, I myself am one who I need to get I need to get pulled back into the middle ground often because I'll I'll have, uh, you know, instances where I where I'm just like, man, I just want to like roll down the street in a pickup truck with a cauldron of ayahuasca, just dosing people, you know, just like handing yeah, it yeah. out to everyone that I possibly can. But you got to. Oh, you gotta, of course. I've heard you, people, you know, say if <laughs> only we could give ISIS MDMA. Yeah. Problem solved. And. Right. <laughs> It might be a little more confusing than that. So. Yeah, there's a little bit more to it than that. It's a it's a little bit more than than just simply uh, doing something like that. Um, so okay, so like so your 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 videos, uh, TDC, the drug classroom. You know they're providing this straightforward drug education and and you know free from from bias as far as I can see. So so you know you're 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 really laying it out there on all sides and, and letting the science speak for itself. What what is your experience when it comes to comes to this stuff? Do you do you uh, you know before you do a video or you know when you're doing research, do you maybe order uh, some chemicals or I mean, how does I don't you know? Um, did, did you? you know, yeah, I um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, um, the, I mean about a good portion of the things on the drug classroom I've not used. I mean, in some cases they're not even readily available available from anywhere, whether it's on the street or online. I mean. So there's certain things that, I mean, you're just not going to get access to. Um, to some extent, that's a negative thing and maybe a positive thing. Who knows? But no, I mean, I do use um, some of those substances. Uh, I, I mean, I like to have an idea of what the drug is doing. Uh, you know, a good example is something like MDMA. Uh, I was talking about it before I had used it, and I think the information was fine. However, once you have used a substance like that or a psychedelic, it's a it's a bit easier to have a discussion about the substance because, I mean, it, it, you can't there's certain things you can't put into words uh, in the in the way that a certain drug feels. So having a discussion with somebody um, is a lot easier uh, and relatable when you've had some sort of personal experience. So I don't really use drugs on a on a frequent basis, but I tend to, uh, I find a given substance, I use it one to three times with an escalating dose, and then I just never use it again. Mm -hmm. And that tends to be the way that I approach things. Yeah, and I, and I would say that uh, it seems like you know that you approach things from a good good standpoint. Um, I would I would say that we probably need more people like that to kind of directly experience something. So this way, they really have a, a good knowledge, a good depth and breadth of of what that uh, substance can provide, what kind of experience that can provide, along with the um, 
you know, along with doing uh, outside research as well and, and kind of coming together for a comprehensive uh, approach to that. So I, I think that tends to be pretty beneficial um, to do that. So, um, yeah, is there, any, is there anything you had mentioned before uh, that you you were getting more into kind of the history and and how uh, drugs could be used uh, throughout history and civilization and, and things like that. Is there anything that that's that's really uh, f- currently fascinating you with uh, with maybe some information that you found out about some substances being used in in history and how they've maybe helped or, or hurt uh, societies? Um, in terms of recent stuff that was kind of in my mind because of just when I was doing the videos, um, the history for a, a few things. I mean, nitrous oxide, Ibogaine, ayahuasca, and there's another one that I'm, I'm blanking on, but uh, there are some very, uh, or, um, the other one was absinthe, which mm. is, it's really just alcohol, but it, but it, it, absinthe is actually a good example of this. I mean, the history is incredible. I mean, there, there were periods of time where probably, you know, half of the artists, I mean, this is just, this is not an actual stat, but a, a huge portion of artists in, in France uh, and in, in Switzerland were using this drug and, and specifically feeling like it was influencing their art. And in some cases, it's actually believed that certain artists, uh, there was one in, in Estonia, that it really had a true impact on a phase of his art. I mean, it was pretty much only alcohol as far as we know, but it had this huge cultural effect and it really, uh, you know, it really took over. And this is where like the history gets interesting. Like in France, France is historically associated with wine. And, but for a period of time, there was, uh, there was a crop issue in the like late, uh, where were we like the late 1800s? And it wiped out the wine crop. And then suddenly almost everybody was using using absinthe and there was like a, a thousand percent increase in <laughs> in the use of the drug. And it was just it was it was, you know, and then you read, you know, what people were saying at the time. And then you also see certain bits of hysteria. I mean, some of the first laws against absinthe came because there was a guy in Switzerland who uh, he tragically killed his wife and his daughters and and then the police and the townspeople blamed it entirely on absinthe which he he had used during that day but he also had like wine and he also had brandy and he had like you know three other drinks and but they they focused on absinthe and it is so reminiscent of what you can see nowadays with drug hysteria i mean i can actually you can view a situation like that and be like, that is so similar to, you know, Flaca, which was alpha PVP, this drug that got a bit of attention in, in Florida and some other places in the past couple of years. And the, just that hysterical response has been around for now centuries and always having the negative effect of influencing policy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the way that people have also used drugs, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. And I have a lot of books on the subject that I, I need to get through on just South American uh, use of ayahuasca. And then there's some other drugs in the area that, that are also used, um, you know, Yopo and, and whatnot. But 
Um, you know, ayahuasca has an interesting history in the way that, you know, syncretic churches appeared in the 1900s. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, syncretic churches, whether it's ayahuasca or ibogaine, it, it's fascinating how those appear. I mean, the idea that you have sort of this Christian influence and possibly the origins are to sort of sanctify or justify the use of the substance. But over time, it truly has become the case that these religions are like half Christian and half drug use that nobody ever associated with Christianity before. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, just the thing that I love about the researching when it comes to drugs is that you really see a huge impact of the entire topic area on the development of of civilizations. I mean, it's not that they're the, you know, the primary factor in most cases, but they certainly probably have had some impact on religious developments or just the way that certain communities function. And that, that remains true in parts of Africa, that remains true in, in South America. And so, I mean, there's, there's a lot to to learn. And I think we can also learn from those groups to see how, you know, how drugs could be integrated into society and not be abused in a way that's harmful. And clearly it is possible because other groups of people have done it. Right. Yeah. Maybe we could learn from our, uh, some of our past mistakes and, uh, and, and kind of progress with, with uh, adding the the good and kind of leave, leaving out the bad, it it seems like uh, yeah, it seems like when you look at history, that there's a there's a bit of a pattern in terms of different uh, societies and civilizations across the globe that are, you know, springing up and and having some sort of association with some kind of substance that will alter you in some way or another, whether it be tobacco mm-hmm. or alcohol or like you gave that great story about absinthe and. Uh, you know, it, it just seems such a part of our human story uh, to, to, to seek these things out. So so people are going – we're going to do this no matter what, no matter what the laws are, no matter what the restrictions and, and regulations are. People have this desire to to go and, and, and use something um, – They do. And, and, yeah. and if there was one desire that I really had in this area – it is to, in terms of learning from other cultures, the biggest thing is finding a way to, I mean, alcohol is technically, you know, it's within society and, and we have just really screwed up our way of using it in a way that centuries ago we were not seeing to the same degree and even in some other countries we don't see. Um, so, But setting that aside, you know, having a way for, drug use to be a social activity that brings people together. I think that's the way that drug use is most useful. I mean, whether it's MDMA, which you actually do see in a lot of people, surely, I mean, you can think what you want about EDM music culture, but the fact that those people are having fun, it's a unifying experience. It, it really enhances certain people's lives cannot be denied. And I think that's better than, than, you know, certain ways of using drugs. And, but this also applies to, to everything from kava or, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, you know, psychedelics, but even, you know, we've had times in history or human history 
where chocolate was was a communal substance to use. And I think it, having these things, whether it's, you know, I'm not a, a fan of religion, but I don't think it can be denied that having some catalyst, whether it's drugs or religion or something of that sort, that brings people together to, you know, engage in and discuss. And especially if you can have transformative experiences, um, as well as have drugs that are antidotes to certain psychological conditions, then that's a great way to have drugs be in society. But right now we have drugs subjugated to such a, a great degree that they don't have the ability to really be that kind of integrated, um, that integrated part of human activity. And it may be the case that, you know, heroin is probably never going to be that way. But there's certain drugs that probably would, and, and it would be for the better. And if you had a society that was more connected around anything, but including drugs, um, as you often see nowadays with psychedelics and certain cultures, I think the chance of people, people abusing drugs, other su substances, is lower. I mean, it's no surprise that the current culture in America would lend itself to people sort of on their own using drugs in a way to, that's negative for them and negative for their families and disconnects them from work and from other recreational activities. It's not really that surprising, but in other cultures, it, can, it happens at a lower rate. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of, you know, having just bonding around something clearly is possible with drugs. And, it, and, and the fact that the drugs can provide really significant experiences in the case of psychedelics, it's not surprising that you would choose to have a, a society be built around that particular kind of activity. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of ways that drugs could be used within a society, and we're really, we're really overlooking their potential. And, and that's not to say, you know, the harms are not significant in certain areas, but it's not only harms, and that's something that people tend to miss. Yeah, wow. Yeah, you said definitely a lot of really great stuff there. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, I think I think that's a, a definitely something that we should be looking at um, and trying to figure out a way and how we can integrate this way of bringing people together, forming kinds of communal experiences where people can, you know, where we can kind of maybe foster uh, an environment that would be conducive to having a, 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 a nurturing, loving and compassionate kind of experience for people who are maybe going through something that is rough or just wanting to have some kind of ecstatic experience. You know, I, I know that, uh, like you mentioned with, uh, with EDM and, and whatnot, you know, I definitely was, uh, was getting, you know, going to a lot of like festivals and, you know, being a part of, 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 a, of a crowd of people where, you know, you could probably guess that about maybe at least half the crowd is on MDMA and, and other things. Yeah. 
but there is a palpable energy of communion in the air and there's something that is very primal that connects you with everybody around you who would normally would be strangers you know normally in New York City you're walking down the street you don't even look at people but now you're in this pit of you know 20,000 people who are all dancing together to music there's something very primal there that connects us uh, to each other and, and it seems to offer a, a good positive experience and there's that that motto that they uh, 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 plur, the plur doctrine of peace, love, unity, and respect. And I can't think of anything else that would be a good, you know, like that, that sounds, pre- sounds pretty good to me. So, and when it, with, uh, with psychedelics, I think the key thing moving forward is to look at what I consider the mistakes of, of the 60s generation and finding a way to integrate psychedelics into society in a less disruptive manner and to not kind of use them in a way to just separate yourself from the culture entirely and be, you know, I, I want nothing to do with this. I'm going to go on my own internal spiritual quest. I mean, there can at times be uses for that, but I think you saw a lot of people sort of place too much emphasis on them, and they also had the impact of of being disruptive in a way that everybody else in society was – I mean, not everybody, but a, but a good portion were looking down upon that kind of activity, whereas you can see other instances of psychedelics being used, which – I mean, whether it's other cultures or just the way that, you know, uh, reading – uh, a book like P call from Alexander Shulgin mm-hmm. and you know him talking about you know using drugs um, in sort of these group settings and it was just you know maybe 10 people or so um, but just having them be used in that kind of way and it's not necessarily always part of some big spiritual quest and a and a you know a way to you know say f you to to society um, but rather just just something to to do and have fun with and bond over. Um, so it, I, you know, there's certain things about the sixties that I think it sort of, you know, a person like Tim Leary is an interesting to listen to and, and interesting to, to read about due to his, his role in history. But I don't think that we would want necessarily a society of Timothy Leary's and, and so that's why it always kind of concerns me when people, and I, and I was like this only a few years ago, um, but when they are approaching psychedelics in that way, in the, you know, that kind of, you know, this is the epitome of, of, of a way to transform and to, you know, reach into, you know, some cosmic perspective. And, and I think it just, it has a negative effect because it really overhypes what the drugs do and, and it, and it te- it seems to have this effect of isolating people from everybody else because they just go on their own their own quest. And so I think some form of better integration is what we should you know be engaged in. And you know it's not psychedelics, but with MDMA, you you do see that. I mean, these people are not dropping out of society to go to these events, and you know they're also not necessarily transforming their lives at those events. But that's a more integrated form of drug use. It's, you know, gathering around a place and doing it and then returning back and and not saying, you know, that this whole 
this whole process is meant to transform the way that the entire world works, like some people wanted to do and and still want to do um, in the psychedelic culture. So I think you know again the the middle ground is is useful. Yeah, I mean it's 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 kind of hard to when you first discover these uh, these substances and you see what the you know the potential is uh, for for maybe human potential or for you know um, spiritual potential to be gained or whatever whatever the if you have a positive experience it can be so tempting to think that this could be a panacea and you know it just like just you you just want to go out and preach uh, you know like gospel to people about about these things but. Um, there's a lot of people that will just not, you know, there it's, I think I got some great advice when someone told me, you know, it's way better to, to invite people in, like you're having a campfire and you're inviting them in to exchange stories and ask questions rather than, you know, driving along the, the Venice beach, uh, boardwalk with a boom box and a, and a megaphone screaming, Jesus is our Lord and savior, you know, yeah, it's, it's a little bit better to kind of invite people in, ask them questions and try and kind of figure out what the best best uses and best practices are just like we do with everything else just uh, the same way that we do with with uh with everything else and um you know i think that uh for for me you know i i definitely uh think that it's our moral right to explore our consciousness in whichever way that we want to alter our our brain in whichever way our minds in whichever way that we we choose um you know that that, that nobody should really tell you that that what you can and can't put into your own body but uh, aside from that, aside from the moral standpoint, there's several um, there's several uh, uh, people that uh, that really advocate, you know, therapeutic, uh, hol- uh, holistic um, uses for certain things uh, to to be. And so they, I think that you know, and I kind of asked you this before, but do you think do you think that's maybe a way to expedite? kind of, you know, this, this, this integration thing, like, you think that that offers more of a doorway into the mainstream and to integrating it into society? You know, if we can really show that certain, uh, certain kinds of, uh, I guess specifically psychedelics or, you know, that I'm speaking about, if we can show that these can really have therapeutic value, um, do you think that that, that, that would be a better way to kind of expedite the integration process into society? I do think it could it could really have a positive effect. I mean, I forget who said it, but I think maybe maybe it was uh, Ethan Nadelman who was pointing out that one of the main factors for getting somebody to view cannabis legalization or at least medical cannabis legalization in a positive way was knowing somebody who had benefited. So if we were to formalize a medical use of MDMA and psilocybin and LSD and suddenly people just in the workplace or in their family knew people who actually used the drug in that way with a doctor or a, or a psychotherapist and it was positive and had all these these clear uh, beneficial effects, then suddenly it starts to normalize the idea of the substances. And I think that's a good tactic. I think it's a it's been useful for for cannabis and for most likely moving forward MDMA and psychedelics. I think the downside is that it can't apply to all substances for the most part. So we're still going to be left with with the people, you know, viewing 
you know, meth in a certain way that's not particularly helpful. Um, but I would, I would rather have some drugs be legal than all drugs be totally prohibited. So, yeah, I mean, at least in some cases, it really does help. I mean, the one of the key factors for the place we're currently in is that through through intentional and unintentional messaging in society, people have a lot of preconceived and incorrect views about the way that these drugs work and what they do. And in the case of something like cannabis, suddenly everybody started to realize, wait, this can be helpful for a lot of conditions. I know people who are using it. They're using it every day. And I don't know. I don't notice anything negative going on with them. They're still doing all their normal work. Maybe they're even happier than before. And suddenly it's like, oh, well, okay, that seems like something we could allow into society. And if there are psychedelic therapy centers in every city, who knows if that would have the the beneficial, I think it probably would, the, the beneficial impact of spreading the view that psychedelics and MDMA can be helpful and should be available, even if it is just in these settings, which I don't view as ideal. But again, you know, I... I really want the people with PTSD to have access to MDMA. So I'll take whatever I can get when it comes to policy change. Yeah, definitely. I'll take whatever I can get when it comes to policy change as well. And I, you know, I, I used to do another podcast, Part of the Problem. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I guess I lean more towards the anarcho uh, side of things. And, uh, and sometimes people will go, oh, man, you just want more status solutions. I'm like, look, man, I will, I will take what I can get. It's a, it's a game of inches as far as I'm concerned. If we can keep kind of moving that ball forward, uh, eventually, I th I feel like we will get towards the goal line, like you said, and I've, with cannabis. Yeah, I've I've noticed the same you know thing in my case because there's certain sort of principles that I I have tried to think through in my head, and and once I've encountered them, especially for the past few years, um, I've not really been able to convince myself of any other position. So you know things like self ownership, things like a sort of maximum level of liberty. And for me, what a, a sort of a maximum, you know, level of freedom and liberty in society would involve is anarcho-capitalism because I just, I just can't see another system that technically represents that at the same time. However, I'm not totally convinced. And even people like David Friedman don't seem to be totally convinced that, that that would necessarily lead to the most ideal situation. So if we can just focus on on reducing the way that government is involved in things and treating taxation as theft on principle to the degree that it should always be limited as much as possible um, and preferably maybe a, a, a relatively low. I mean, if the government was doing only the things that that sort of say a minarchist uh sort of view of things would would justify i mean a whether it's a land value tax or a sales tax that is probably relatively low could possibly fund the government and i would be i would be much happier with that system even if it is still technically theft is still occurring in society um based on a, on that principle uh, i would much prefer that so i i do you know and i think even 
know, I heard Jason Stapleton um, recently, uh, who does another sort of libertarian podcast, um, you know, expressing that point of view. I think he was on Dave Rubin, uh, you know, saying, you know, let's focus on the things that can change, you know, things like police overreach and prohibition and, you know, move in those areas. And before we even get into this infighting and disagreement about going one step further and two steps further, you know, just get through those things to move in that positive direction. And that's why I'm on that side versus the, you know, blow up the system and <laughs> and try and, you know, institute anarcho-capitalism, right. um, which I don't think is realistically ever going to happen. But we could make positive change. And saying that positive change is not useful unless we're 100 percent the way that the most idealistic people would want seems a little bit silly. And you're going to miss out on a lot of, you know, freedom centric benefits that you could have within the society if you are always focused on that and never willing to compromise on any deal. So, you know, and and in prohibition, that kind of, you know, works, you know, when a state wants to, you know, decriminalize cannabis, I'm not going to say no, don't do that because legalization entirely is the only way to go. No, I would love for people not to go to jail anymore. So, you know, right, we can move, you know, step by step and go in this direction. And we don't have to have, you know, the 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 libertarian society that I want in five years, you know, it can take longer. Let's just move in that direction. And you're going to find a lot of people actually get on board with that kind of message. You know, when when people are no longer trying to institute a utopia, then you can actually, you know, make positive changes while recognizing, you know, this is the biggest problem that people seem to have when it comes to sort of libertarian principles is that, you know, people think, you know, I guess some people do approach libertarianism as a utopia, but it's not really how I do, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that, you know, look. At, you know, this individual issue that would not be dealt with under that kind of system. Well, okay, either maybe we could find a way to deal with that through, you know, a lot of times private means, but maybe in a sort of minarchist system, we could justify some, you know, there's something huge going on and you could justify some sort of regulation in that that very specific area because it's this this very atypical situation that can't be dealt with otherwise. Or... We can, in most cases, just recognize that a certain level of negative things in society are going to exist. Right. We just need to move in the way that's most positive, you know, instead of trying to the bar always being set at everybody has everything they want, you know, because that's not <laughs> it's not reasonable. So right. any sort of utopian view, you know, the the end goal of Marxist, you know, view, that kind of stuff, I, I just can't get on board with and I can't get on board it with it on the right or the left, wherever we are, it's just not likely to occur. And it's too high of a standard. But we can make positive change. And that's the great thing about it. You mean we can't No, you mean not everybody could have equal, uh, fair, you know, like, not everyone could be these uh, perfect equal, everyone, everything's you, you know, yeah, I I, I completely agree. I don't know where I I was trying to make some kind of funny uh, metaphor or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it's just this silly idea that we could just force everything, everyone to be, uh, everyone to be happy and equal and fair and everything. And it's like, look, of course, that would be great. But you know, we live in reality where these things are a lot harder. And you know, 
my my thing is, look, I love the idea that the principles of liberty and libertarianism, and I do lean more towards the anarcho-capitalist side of things. So in that kind of society, if we can inch the ball further towards that, then we can start to see less regulation, less laws, less restrictive policies, and we can allow for more freedom to happen where we can see uh, competition and we can see the, the a battle of ideas kind of take place and maybe even secession into smaller units where we can organize among like-minded people or something like that. But the, the point is, let's at least allow people to have the freedom to test theories, to put things to the test, and let's use, the, let's use data to come up with what, what's, a be, what's the best way to organize society. What are the best ways to, to make sure that we have, uh, have, have, have a, a, a group of people that, that are living to the, to the best possible ability that they can live to? And, and I, you know, I always say to people who favor more of a socialist thing, I'm like, hey, look, under a libertarian society, you can go and you can try your socialist thing as long as it's voluntary. But, you know, oftentimes what happens exactly. is it, it, they find out it doesn't really work that, that well. Um, or maybe, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that, you know, within this sort of very freedom-centric environment that you would have small communes of people who could live the way that they wanted. I mean, there are certain people who will, you know, to the day that they die, feel as though ever working for somebody, you know— because, you know, you have to work in order to get money, to get food, and therefore you have to work to li live, and that means that you're a slave of McDonald's. I mean, people make that jump, um, you know, which I'm not sure what they think real slavery is, mm -hmm. but, you know, or not realizing that you do realize that, I mean, are you, are you going to say that you're sort of a, a slave to nature because in the absence of money to get food, you would have to have spend your entire day doing these things to get food. So therefore, you know, Mother Earth is a, is a terrible monster. You know, so, I mean, you're, you'll have those people who have that very strict view of it's all oppression all the time whenever a company is involved. And okay, you know, the, the, of, there probably will be, you know, enough money for you to set up on a piece of land a commune that works. And in my opinion, the general, general idea of anything that's more socialist or communist works on that level. It doesn't work on 7 billion people, but right. it might work on 250. And if, if you're one of those 250, you have a place to go. I mean, that's fine. There's no issue with that. Nobody will ever try to stop you know, that from happening. Right. Whereas if you go down the communist route, suddenly, you know, what if under the communist system that's being implemented, I ever wanted in some way to have an exchange that was sort of not equal and I, you know, I wanted to set up a contract with somebody like that becomes this illicit thing because it starts to institute something that undermines the communist system. So it only works when every single person is on board, um, which you're never going to get. You're never going to have everybody on board to that degree. And that's, I think, the, the folly of the system so, you know, but obviously, luckily, we're we're far away from either of those being, you know, reality. Um, we're probably not going to have um, anybody really try to implement, you know, communism in the United States. I mean, who knows? But, you know, I think well, it's yeah, a, a low I, chance. For sure. I mean, yeah, but, they, they definitely like to favor more kind of nationalist, socialist kinds of policies, at least in this administration. Yeah. yeah. True. And and. You know, it is it's often despicable. Um, but I do think it's important. I think there's been a lack of 
when I kind of think about what I was learning in in school when it came to history, I think there was a lack of discussion about communism. I mean, we really should be learning about what are the true ideological goals of Marx or those who espoused fascism and what were the results as far as we can tell when that tries to be implemented. And I think you'll get more people to realize that although there are a lot of flaws in the you know so-called free market system of the U.S., that it's a better option than what those systems accomplished. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you always get the response that that the Soviet Union and in Cuba and, you know, North Korea and China were never really communist. Well, yeah, they weren't. They didn't get necessarily to the Marx goal, but I don't think that the Marx goal was is possible that's kind of the reason it didn't uh, go in that direction that's, i you know so, I, I laugh at that because it's like well we we, ne- we never really established true communism it's like yeah how many people have to die before we we actually establish quote-unquote true communism to find out whereas on the other side the second you know we all now know that if you start on the path of communism it comes with a a uh, at least a handful, and I think we can all agree, of negative effects on society. Whereas the second that you move on this other direction, you start to have an increase in freedom, an increase in living standards, and a a sort of better form of just living in general. I mean, I would rather have you know, everybody there be a form of inequality within society than have everybody within the equivalent of poverty because it's equal. I mean, like equal is not inherently good. I'd rather have there be a ladder during which, you know, some people at any given time may indeed be in a very low income bracket. And that's terrible. And we should, you know, if possible, you know, preferably through private means, try and alleviate the most negative effects of that. But I would take that over, you know, what seems to be guaranteed by communism. So, you know, even though we don't have, you know, it's kind of like saying, you know, we don't technically ever have just pure free market capitalism either, but even just the degree to which we do, it's positive. So, you know, you can at least compare those things, you know, inadequate communism versus inadequate capitalism. I'm choosing the inadequate capitalism any day. Mm-hmm. And there's countries that have actually gone through that process and everybody from those countries seems to pretty much be on board. So it's it's unfortunate when you see people that swing in the other direction and and say it's all oppression and all has to be, you know, torn down and and you know, we have to go back to Marx and and maybe that does come from a lack of history education. I think there's a lot to be gained from understanding, you know, these ideologies. They didn't appear out of nowhere. So we need to learn, you know, 19th and 20th 20th century history and ideology. It's quite helpful. And yeah, and maybe people would understand what's going on instead of just saying the banks are bad. So, you know, they all need to be the entire economic system has to now be controlled by the government. It's like, wait, wait, wait. I mean, I think there, you know, there's a problem. We've identified it, but that kind of solution is it goes down a path that you really don't want to go down on and and we we have enough evidence for it. So yeah, it's not not you know directly related to drugs, but uh, but I do think you know it under it 
at the core of this is just the freedom principle. I want, you know, when I'm standing here right now, you know, you know talking with you, if, if I had a drug in front of me, there should be no issue with me picking it up and taking it. There should not be the police coming in to arrest me. Um, there's also shouldn't be the police coming in to arrest me if somebody comes through my door and I decide, hey, I, I think, you know, the drug classroom would be better if I actually set it up as a company and I was hiring somebody and but I'm going to pay you. You know, I can't afford too much right now, but I'm going to you know try and help you as much as I can. And I'm going to pay you four dollars an hour um, and do that to a number of people that shouldn't be illegal. And we need to understand that. And and nor should it be if I made the despicable decision that, you know, somebody, you know, who, who comes through and, you know, say it was something that and this is where some people start to depart from my views. But, you know, that a black person came through. This would never happen in my life because I couldn't care less about who I'm hiring. But if somebody really is out there who doesn't want to hire a person based on that reason, I understand why that's a despicable thing. But I don't think you can actually on principle find a way for this to be outlawed in the way that it is. Mm -hmm. So if it's a government function that is discriminating against people, that's horrible. The legal system is discriminating against, against people, that's horrible. But when it comes to a, a company interacting with somebody to hire them or to sell them a product, that I don't think you need to force those interactions. And I think you know that's a full implementation of the policy or the, the principle and and if the worst thing that happens in this current you know, society is once in a while somebody can't get a, a, a cake baked mm -hmm. for them or they can't, you know, or, you know, one, you know, racist employer said, no, get out of here. I'm not going to I'm not going to hire you. We don't need to rewrite the entire legal system to address that. Uh, so, you know, I think that's where, you know, I, I lose some people, but I think we can deal like when I was saying before that a utopia isn't the goal, you know, that would be an instance of that. We're, a utopia would be everybody's not racist and everybody's hiring everybody and everybody is, you know, never discriminating when it comes to pay. And that would be awesome. And you should put pressure on companies to do that. But you don't probably need legislation to, to mandate certain interactions, you know, just for the, you know, in the name of, of trying to move towards a, a utopia. And, especially when it comes to certain policies that could have negative effects. I mean, there's probably not really too many negative effects when it comes to, you know, you know, somebody was fired for, you know, for sexist reasons. You know, if that legislation was in there to say that that's wrong, um, there's probably not negative effects. But on something like minimum wage, there may actually be negative effects. So there's even more reasons to consider that policy carefully. And and I just, you know, it, it would be nice in my opinion, to just have a certain, you know, realm of principles pertaining to self-ownership and then that also applying um, to your money. And you can do what you want with your money, including hire people. And, you know, implementing those policies, I think, does more good than bad. And I would rather have a, a government based on principles, which seem to be what we were trying to get at with the Constitution, mm -hmm. even if it it turned out to fail uh, because we are far from it. Yeah. Um, and far from what I think you could you could say was being argued in those um, in the Bill of Rights. But, uh, you know, that idea of, hey, 
we have this document here which lays out a very clear set of things that the government won't do to its people. That's awesome. And that, you know, having some level of principle instead of just constantly, you know, everything is up for vote and whatever people want goes. I don't think that's really a great idea. No, I agree with you 100%. I think if we can inject the principles of liberty and freedom and self-ownership and private property into the consciousness of the mainstream culture more, that then that would allow for more, uh, that would actually allow for for more kind of, um, you know, more, more a little bit more peace, a less, a less of a fear-based approach. You kind of leave people to their own devices as long as they're not harming anybody else. What difference does it make? You know, I love, I love uh, this, this Terrence McKenna quote where he says, uh, if the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness don't include the right to experiment with your own consciousness, then the Declaration of Independence isn't worth the hemp it was written on. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, right now, one of the biggest issues that people are talking about is, is a potentially disproportionate level of violence towards minorities, specifically African Americans. And this is all coming from, you know, this has spawned Black Lives Matter and, and it's understandable um, why there's a focus on this issue. But I think if we could focus on, you know, at, if that kind of movement was totally focused on drug legalization and getting rid of, you know, probably certain traffic laws. I mean, like, you know, mm -hmm. certain drunk yeah. driving laws and the way that they're implemented, like stopping people Check randomly stops, to yeah. see if they're drunk. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, that's not good. Uh, and and then prostitution, you know, get rid of those and the number of interactions between police, the size of the police force. Uh, I mean, these things would be addressed to a significant degree just by improving the laws. I mean, not too people, not too many people are saying f the police in a situation where the police are only going after murderers and rapists and people who stole things and and you also reduce the need for patrol so i mean if if we were focused on that versus you know race and it's not wrong to point out that you know a, a group is affected more there but you know it sort of suggests that if only there was if there were more shootings of white people and more stops of white people, that everything would be okay. No, the, <laughs> the issue is the police using force right. in these situations where they shouldn't. So focus on the police militarization, focus on the principle at hand, and I think we could all, you know, you would see more people on the right who would get behind that, especially the more libertarian right, and get behind that idea if it was approached in that way. Instead of talking about, you know, these other social justice issues, not to say that they all are, are false or should not be focused on at all. But if you're going to to have a campaign, I think focusing on a principle is is much more unifying across party lines and across groups of people than you currently see with the with this situation where a lot of people are just looking at, you know, the issue of Black Lives Matter and and saying, I don't like that at all. And I'm, therefore, I'm just going to stand behind the police entirely. And and no, that that was not effective. You just led to more people saying that they're totally fine with the police. Whereas if you were saying, hey, these seem to be like way too many interactions we, between people who are doing nothing, right. both white, black, Latino, whatever. 
uh, and then suddenly getting killed or being arrested or just being harassed. And that's where the greatest disparities seem to be, not necessarily in in shootings of black people, but especially in the uh, the amount of stops that affect them and the interactions that affect them, even if they're not lethal. That's just wrong. There's a, if you're driving down the street and you've done nothing, you should not be stopped. Or if you're walking down the street, you should not be stopped. And and that's a principle that we really need to get behind. And it would be nice if that was the way that people were approaching the issue. In my opinion, of course, this is coming, you know, in the in the in the current climate of of identity politics. It's coming from a a white cis gender whatever male. Oh um, my god, so a white nobody, cisgender male. Yeah. Don't listen to him, yeah, folks. <laughs> so so I, I might not have any, you know, leg to stand on, yeah. but that's my honest view of the situation. I have a lot of sympathy for what these people are fighting for, but I do think there was a there's a way to tweak it and right. focus on the principle because that those kinds of principles also line up with what a lot of people were saying in the late 1700s. And if we could realize that that would be pretty impressive. If we could all stand behind principles that were being espoused in terms of liberty and freedom that were coming from at least some people within the, you know, the early American, you know, the colonies and then the government, uh, that'd be awesome. I'd be I'd be way more in favor of that. You would probably see me protesting in the street if we were actually, you know, fighting for those specific rights. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we took a different turn, unfortunately, as a as a society temporarily and and that's not a uh, you know great thing and you definitely are not going to see any you know tea party freedom caucus people who are going to align themselves with black lives matter but if you were focused on on the liber the sort of principles of liberty you may actually get people on that side of the the discussion who are agreeing with the people who would otherwise be talking about Black Lives Matter because it becomes a principle of freedom. And, you know, and that's what's so powerful about that argument as well. And if you just, you know, if people could just have a, a freedom bias, that'd be, there, there's so many benefits to that. Yeah, unfortunately, I think people, what happens is oftentimes good ideas or good labels or something that sounds good on the outside, Black Lives Matter, right? Of course they matter. Well, who wouldn't yeah. say that they don't matter? But if, you know, it's like this this hijacking of this word and then, or this phrase, and then using it to tug on people's heartstrings to get them wrapped up in this emotional nonsense of, of, of words and language and this and that. But also, you know, yeah, I mean, like you said, if we had more people rooted in the, in, in, in the ideas, of, of freedom, and this is more of a, a principle of liberty issue, that we could see how it all ties in. A cop stops a, a guy on the side of the road. He's a black guy. He searches his car. Maybe he finds a little bit of weed or something. All of a sudden, now it's a national incident because the cop shoots him, and then you have half the country saying, well, this guy's a black gangster, and he deserved uh, what he got because he was a drug guy. He had drugs in his car, and uh, and that's the end of that, and we're going to support the police because they protect us. And then you have the other half of the country, you know, Black Lives Matter, saying look at this epidemic police just shoots people so it's like well well isn't it a little bit more new like shouldn't we think a little bit deeper shouldn't we think about the ideas of liberty and freedom a little bit why is this guy being stopped why is it not okay that he has a little bit of marijuana who is he harming and what is this drug war actually doing to help us what are the statistics where where's the evidence that people are being helped and saved and liberated there, there is none there is none. It's just this, well, yeah, this mindless war. It, yeah. And and there's a lot of talking points when it comes to being anti-prohibition. And obviously we can focus on 
on, I mean, freedom, but we can also focus on public health because I, I mean, legal heroin is countless times safer than uh, prohibited heroin. I mean, it's just, it's just a fact. There's really, there's no, uh, there's no toxicologist or pharmacologist informed about the issue who would ever disagree with that. And, and so, you know, there's a public safety argument. There's also an argument when it comes to how it impacts police relations. It also comes down to what about all of the source countries? I mean, what about South America? What about Afghanistan? Right. What does this and in and, and Central America, what does this drug trade do to people? I would rather have some people who have, you know, you know, some Christian conservative considers a drug addict to be immoral and uh, sort of, you know, they're they're sinning. I'd rather have, you know, even, you know, even if I agreed with that, uh, I'd rather have people who were sinning and ruining their own lives than totally innocent people in, you know, eight eight year olds in, you know, favelas being killed. Mm-hmm. I, I like I would pick, you know, the the addicts some more addicts over way fewer deaths and way less crime in those other countries because they're not we're not even talking about drug users who are being hurt by prohibition we're actually talking about people who had nothing to do with it so and this is actually the argument that Milton Friedman brought up at, at some point um, saying that you know you can have like compassion for the the drug addict but even more so when it comes to just an innocent person in you know Mexico or El Salvador or other areas in South America who was just killed as a result of the gang cartel violence which is spawned entirely by the existence of a black market so once you realize the the actual scope of this issue and the way that it impacts people and ruins lives then there are so many arguments in favor of prohibition but unfortunately a lot of people really restrict the argument to just focusing on people in the US as though, you know, all of the growing and the and the selling and the the transportation occurs within the US. It doesn't. It, it has a huge global negative impact that actually contributes to political and government instability and a complete abolishment of so much potential human productivity because of the way that these groups which are funded to a significant degree by illicit drugs are sort of messing with the local populace. And, and, and if we actually expand the view of how prohibition impacts the world, I think it becomes such a no brainer that, (laughs) that you would want a different policy. Right. Yeah. It's almost like if you take that example I gave of the individual being stopped in the car by the police officer and projected on a macro scale, you know, you're looking at the same kind of thing that's happening with our culture and the way that we we uh, maybe dehumanize and demonize, uh, you know, maybe people, uh, brown skinned people that are making cocaine in Colombia. Oh, these are these are some evil, evil people with guns and they're bad guys and they're going to kill. And that's how and that's how we've been talking about it. I mean, not you know, we figuratively, but that's how it's been discussed for so long is associating, um, you know, and it's not purely driven by racism, but a lot of the drug laws, um, at least started in some kind of, of, you know, racist viewpoint. And, 
in a, a stereotyping and, and finding a way to, you know, you can't just go around, you know, arresting people for, you know, being, you know, black, but you definitely could if you could identify an activity they're engaging in that, that people, you know, could conceivably think is wrong. And then voila, you have the current situation. And it's not that it's continued to be an issue because of, of clear widespread racism, but it definitely has roots in that. And it, and it, and it certainly contributed to the way that people view different groups of people because, you know, maybe they are more affected by certain drugs because of the communities they're in or because of the way that these things were talked about in the media for a long time. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of insidious and sort of less overt ways in which the, the policy of prohibition has contributed to larger societal issues, which are frequently overlooked. Right. Yeah. And, and it seems to be, um, you know, really education and access to information, uh, to educate yourself about these kinds of things. And I think that we're starting to see a change happen. I mean, ever since really the internet has spread and allowed for a, a, a mass of people to have access, that at least now the, the options are out there. You know, I, I like this this quote uh, that I've been hearing, in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. And I think to some degree that's true, but on some degree it, it is a, a part of the society's responsibility in order to educate the, the youth who are coming up in the society to the true nature of the world and the true nature of, of, of uh, you know, let, let's say like these substances that you speak about and how the true history of things. And so in a way, it's kind of our fault for not, not us, but, you know, hum, humanity the before us that, that dropped the ball and didn't really, you know, and, and didn't uh, properly educate people in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of this stuff. So I think really what we do need is we need more people out there like you that are providing this kind of education. So, you know, what, what, uh, when people come to the drug classroom, uh, you know, dot com, and they see your videos, I know I see you have. They're all on YouTube as well, and you have a bunch of uh, subscribers on YouTube, and you have them on your website. What What are you hoping for people to uh, get out of this experience and and learn from from you know coming to the uh, TDC drugclassroom dot com? I'm really hoping that they. I mean, obviously, it's based around learning things. I hope. In a lot of cases, it will dispel certain incorrect beliefs that people have. You know, so, so if somebody who is not actually trying to use drugs, they're just, you know, you know, say like alpha PVP was a drug that was being talked about recently in the news and they go and I don't know if I actually did a video on it, but they go and they find, you know, information there. They see the video and it can actually serve to, you know, tamp down the hysteria about it and just educate about where did the, this drug actually come from? Here's what it's doing in the brain. Here's what the safety is. And it's really not as bad as some people made it out to be. In the other situation, you have people who are actually wanting to use drugs and they, they have an interest in using the substance in a safe way. They have no desire to go out and, you know, use MDMA or use LSD or use, you know, even cocaine or methamphetamine in a way that's going to permanently damage them for the future. 
you know, nobody makes that. If you give somebody, you know, here's one way to use cocaine and it's safe. Here's another way to use cocaine and it's not safe. I'm not aware of too many non-suicidal people who are going to pick option two. Mm -hmm. And, and unfortunately people are only presented with option two in the current paradigm. And with the drug classroom, I hope it provides option one. Okay. You're going to do the drug. You know, hopefully if you're, you know, 15 or 16, you hold off, you have your entire life. If you're really interested in using drugs, you have your entire life to use drugs and it's going to cause you most likely fewer problems if you wait until 20 than doing it at 16, you know, but for everybody, especially over 18 or so who is interested, you know, here are the things, don't combine it with this, take 30 milligrams, you're going to be fine, you know, unless you, you know, don't, you know, do, you know, if you had a recent, you know, schizophrenia diagnosis, Stay away from LSD mm -hmm. because we don't know clearly what the association is. So just don't bother. Don't do it. Um, but, you know, so so explaining in a non-judgmental, unbiased way, you know, who should who should be safe in which situations, how to be safe in which situations. And I think you know, I, I hope that so far it's had a a positive impact on the way that people use drugs, because one of the best ways to demonize drugs is to have more and more articles in the news of, you know, 15 year old tragically enters coma because of insert drug. If I could in any way over the course of the drug classroom reduce even 1% the rate at which those articles appear appear because of people use the drug in a safe way, I would be incredibly happy. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like a good a good goal to have. And um do you worry at all about um the maybe crackdown on the internet, maybe restricting free speech and and things like that? I I had noticed that uh that, that you know, I think that the state would like to get their hands on on control of information. Um, and I, I do have a slight little worry in the back of my mind that maybe they will try ramping up control over what, uh, what gets put out there. Uh, do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about the, you know, freedom and, you know, the freedom to have education with these videos is something that I see as a necessity as time moves on and people get more informed and, and we start to integrate them into the culture. So the, the use to have, uh, an outlet for education on these things is, is, is very important. I would hate to see the, uh, the, cra uh, some kind of internet crackdown and freedom crackdown essentially to, to obstruct that. Do you, uh, worry about that at all? Or what do you think about that? I don't really uh, worry about a crackdown in terms of freedom, which would mean, you know, the government passes some sort of law that is that is restri restrictive towards what ISPs can show or something like that. And then suddenly you need a VPN to get around and nobody's going to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we're moving in Chinese, mm -hmm. you know, Internet, you know, firewall direction. Um, but, uh, and this is less of an issue on principle. Um, I do think there's always the possibility for YouTube to say, you know, we're not putting your videos, you know, we're, we're not going to let them be on the platform anymore. And that, that actually happened once the entire channel was terminated and, and which had me worried that was in like April of last year. So about a year ago. 
And luckily I talked with somebody there and got it back. But just in case I set up the website, I set up a uh, Vimeo account and put all the videos there. So, you know, that should not be an issue. So, and that's not a free speech issue. Um, you know, it's never really a, a case of, of actual censorship. I would never, you know, I, I might complain about, you know, having the videos taken down if they were, but I don't, I don't view it as, you know, anti-free speech, you know, on, on that kind of principle. Uh, but I, that's the only level of, of potential issue that I am usually concerned about. Okay. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I I I noticed that uh, YouTube was cracking down, and and I saw like some on a restricted mode. It it seemed that they, you know, kind of like a Google filter search or something like that. But um, but yeah, I think that this is this is good information. I you know that to to have out there. So yeah, look, I guess we're we're uh you know we're we're in the process of kind of always having that little kind of tug and pull in terms of what people are wanting to be exposed to or or allowing in society and that sort of thing but overall I think it's a good thing that uh that we have have uh educational outlets out there for people so please uh you know tell people where they can find you um again you know the drug classroom or as you call it you know tdc the drug class uh, classroom.com right that's like the go-to place to go where you're 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 giving drug education uh because like you said you know people are going to be these drugs are out there. People are going to be using them, so it really only makes sense that we, you know, educate them free from any sort of uh, skewed, uh, you know, propagandistic way in terms of, uh, you know, educating people on these drugs in a, in a real non-biased approach and an objective approach and giving people the information they deserve to have about these things. So uh, I'll, I'll let you kind of tell people where they can find you, where they can follow you. Um, you mentioned also your podcast. I know we didn't really get to talk a little bit about that, but if you want to mention that briefly, uh, mention that as well. Sure. So the drug classroom content is primarily found on the drug classroom.com. That's where, I mean, you can find links to the videos. You can find links to podcasts. And I also do um, for those of you who are, uh, sort of more interested in the like the science or sort of more details about drugs. I also do overviews of individual studies, so make it a little bit easier for people to understand. And so there's a bunch of information there on YouTube, which is just for the videos. It's also the drug classroom. And then you can find uh, on Facebook, the drug classroom and on Twitter, it's just drug classroom. And then for my personal Twitter, it is Seth A. Fitzgerald. And yeah, I think that's about it. And oh, and the podcast is the Addictive Podcast. And I'm on some of the episodes and not on other ones. It's just, you know, depends on what we're talking about. And that one is a bit more focused on sort of addiction and therapy. So it's a, it's a bit of a different topic. Occasionally, we'll talk about drug education um, but, it, but a, a lot of it is therapy and I plan on starting a different podcast, um, for the drug classroom in the relative near future. I don't know exactly when. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Cool. Yeah. And I also see that you have a, uh, a Patreon page here as well. Um, so if people want to support you, they can go to your, your Patreon, right? Yeah. So, and that's also the drug classroom and yeah, I mean, everything that, I do with with the website or with the videos. It's all supported by donations. There's no ads involved in anywhere. So uh, it's just 
donation based and and I plan on keeping it that way. So if you happen to check out the content and find it's useful and want to help more come out, then I definitely appreciate the support. Excellent. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, yeah. If you guys go over to the drug classroom.com, check out all of Seth's work. It's, it's really tremendous. You know, these videos are very, uh, very detailed. They're presented very well. Um, you know, they're labeled, uh, properly and there's an in-depth analysis in, into, into pretty much everything that you could think of. I mean, just looking at some of the ones, you know, two, uh, two FMA, nitrous oxide, DOB, DMT, uh, I probably can't even pronounce some of these. They're, they're, they're out of my, my, out of my realm, but that's, uh, I, I definitely care about this sort of stuff. And I'm glad that there's people out there like you that are making this happen and, and providing this much needed education, uh, to all of us. And Seth, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, your, your comments, uh, not just on drugs, but on, on freedom and liberty and everything, because I really do think it all comes together as a whole as well. So everybody go check out Seth's work and at the drug And, uh, yeah, thanks for, for listening to this episode. Talk to you next time.